We pray a lot in this church, so unapologetically, would you uh, pray with me again? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for um, uh, just the fact that when your word is proclaimed, um, kind of regardless of what the talking head even says up here, something happens, Lord. We trust you that your spirit uh, enlivens your word, that it um, causes a change in us, and we, we just pray for for our hearts to be open, that you would help us to receive what you have, especially this complex, uh, kind of difficult passage, Lord, for us to get our, our minds and our emotions around. So we ask you for your help, because we, um, because we just can't do it in our, in our own strength and our own wisdom. Thank you for teaching us. Amen. <clears throat> Paradox, a statement of proposition that despite apparently sounding uh, sound reasoning from an acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless or logically unacceptable or self-contradictory. All right, this one's for Professor Wasserman. There's the grandfather paradox. Suppose a man traveled back in time and killed his biological grandfather before that grandfather met his biological grandmother. As a result, one of the traveler's parents, and therefore the traveler himself, would never have been conceived. This would imply that he could not have traveled back in time after all, which means that the grandfather would still be alive, and that the traveler would have been conceived, and therefore could have gone back and killed his grandfather. Right. Here's, here's one for, for people that think on my level. The, the paradox of the intentionally blank page, you've seen that in documents where it says, this page intentionally blank, but the problem is it's not blank, right? There's, there's the writing on there. Okay, that, that one's more my level too. <laughs> Ryan can teach you about the grandfather one or maybe Collins later on. But Okay, originally a paradox was merely a view that contradicted common opinion. So uh, there's the, the paradox of hedonism, which goes like this. When one pursues happiness itself, one is miserable. But when one pursues something else, one achieves happiness. Okay? Now let's get away from this philosophy stuff. This one's for Tommy. When you're riding a bike, uh, studies have shown, like on sports science and stuff, that if, for example, you want to turn the bike left, you subconsciously and very quickly actually turn the wheel slightly to the right before you make that left-hand turn. Here's why. You're riding your bike, you turn to the right just a bit, that shifts your weight to the left and then you take your turn. Think about it next time you ride your bike. If you're just straight up and down and you only turn left without that little shift to the right, you're going to fly over this way. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's kind of paradoxical to think that I turn right to actually turn left, right? Now why am I talking about all this bike riding and philosophy stuff about paradoxes? Because this evening we're going to continue on in our exploration of Jesus' teaching on the mount in Matthew 5. In particular, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes and specifically the second Beatitude, Matthew 5, 4, which says, Blessed are those who are mourning, for they shall be comforted. It sounds to me to be paradoxical. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? At least not in our culture. If you watch television or surf the internet or look at ads in the newspaper even, do you ever see any companies trying to sell their goods by exalting mournfulness, right, as this uh, attitude to be achieved or emulated? Like you never see a soft drink commercial or a beer commercial and everyone just like, drink this beer, it's really going to 
you know, you, you just don't see that. It, it sounds absurd to think of an, uh, of an advertisement that would exalt mourning as, a, as something that would be blessed. You may be mourning today. And certainly, if you're human, you've mourned before, and you'll mourn again. So, as thoughtful people, we really need to think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the one whom Christians worship, the one we believe died for us, the one we call king and savior. He's the one we're all trying to be like and the one we're to tell others about, right? He also said, blessed are those who mourn. On the surface, it sounds like our master and teacher and God is at best stating a paradox or at worst, kind of being cruel and insulting to those of us who mourn. What are we going to make of all of this? Well, a few weeks ago, I gave an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And during that introduction, I mentioned how important it's going to be when we start digging into the Sermon on the Mount, when we start looking at the minutiae of these verses, to, um, to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a teaching that's part of a much larger whole. The entire Bible, right? And so what I called that was the 30,000 foot view. It's like when you're lost in the woods, what do you want to do? You want to get to the highest point so you can get perspective. You can see where you are in, in relationship to everything else. So let's take a step back before we dive in and quickly recall what's going on so far just in Matthew. Before chapter 5 comes chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. You can tell I did my homework. I'm blowing your mind right now, aren't I? Did you know that? There were four... Okay. Uh, anyway, in, the, in these preceding chapters before Matthew 5, Matthew's letting us know that Jesus is not just some other gifted teacher who goes up on a hill. He's not merely a prophet. He's not even merely the Messiah. He is the one, not Neo. He is Yeshua. God saves. He is Emmanuel, the with us God. The one that the voice in the wilderness was preparing the way for. And Matthew records Jesus' first sermon in the fourth chapter of his gospel. And Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, where God, what God wants done is done. That kingdom is breaking into our world. Jesus is proclaiming that with his arrival in the flesh, so begins the arrival of the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't just proclaim the arrival of this kingdom with his mouth. He proclaims it with doing some works of the kingdom as well. He began gathering students around himself, otherwise known as disciples. He began forming a new community of God around himself. And then he performed signs of the kingdom's arrival. He cast out demons and he healed and delivered people from that which was holding them captive in mind and body and spirit. So, Jesus is this with us God. He in himself embodies all that we were meant to be, but failed to be. He proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of God, which is his gospel. It's his good news, and he begins calling people to follow him. While he's healing, and casting out demons, and freeing people from bondage. Jesus is acting in pure grace. Pure grace. Think about it. Nobody did anything particularly 
special in Jesus' day. There's no reason why Jesus shows up in the first century uh, as opposed to any other time. The people in the first century Palestine weren't somehow more virtuous than you and I or the people before them. It's just good news. It's just grace that Jesus shows up on the scene, that God puts on flesh and dwells among us. So, what we see is that Jesus proclaims this good news, performs this good news, and just as Moses went up on a mountain thousands of years, or over a thousand years before Jesus, so Jesus goes up on a mountain. And just as Moses received the Ten Commandments and the good news for his people, so Jesus gives good news to his people. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that from this 30,000 foot view, with this high perspective, that the words we are about to hear come out of Jesus' mouth will also be good news. He's trustworthy. He is God. And he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, or who are mourning, for they shall be comforted. I think part of my problem and part of our problem, just as people who live in the United States and the West, is that we don't really have a great English word to translate the word for blessing in the Greek. It's makarios in the Greek. And sometimes Bibles translated as happy. And I listened to Jeff's sermon last week, awesome. Uh, and he did a really good job with explaining this. But if you missed it, I just think that happiness is too weak of a word because our happiness is really dependent on our circumstances, right? Like, I could be happy. Uh, I, I could be blessed all the time, but I could be happy depending on, you know, my kid's mood, right? Like, and in, in happiness goes up and down all the time just depending on, on outside circumstances. Um, but this word makarios is much deeper than that, more solid. Blessed, I think, is a really good word, but in a way, the, the word blessed has been screwed up in our culture too. We've turned the word blessed in our culture into something that's uh, akin to happiness. So, right, you watch a football game, and some athlete makes this touchdown pass and spikes the ball. Can you do that anymore? Uh, anyway, does a, a celebration, and then in the interview, says, Oh man, I'm so blessed. So blessed. Or, or someone who wins the lottery. Ah, oh, I'm so blessed. Well, yeah, I mean, you were blessed before probably, but you're happy. You're happy about your circumstance. Um, right? you, you, don't, you don't ever see an interview where the guy drops the game-changing pass in the end zone and his team loses and say, yeah, I just uh, totally screwed up our whole season. Uh, I disappointed all the fans, and, uh, and I'm so blessed. Wouldn't that just sound ridiculous? Blessed are those who mourn. It doesn't make a lot of sense. N.T. Wright defines blessedness like this. Blessedness is what happens when the Creator God is at work both in someone's life and through that person's life. Blessedness is what happens when the Creator God is both at work in someone's life and through someone's life. You know what I like about that definition? has nothing to do with outside circumstances. has nothing to do with how I feel about anything. I'm blessed if God is working in my life and through my life to touch other people. Likewise, blessedness is what happens when this same God is fulfilling the promise He made to His ancient people. 
The promises contained in the covenant as set out in the closing chapters of Deuteronomy. And both of those, the the human blessing and the Israel blessing, are evoked by Jesus' remarkable words in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3-11. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Makarios, makarios, makarios. It's this deep is this much word, word that's much deeper than happiness. It's what happens that, despite your circumstances, what happens when God is working in and through your life. Now, for our verse tonight, um, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to recognize that, that this is in reference to individuals, yes, but individuals who make up the people of God. You'll notice that every one of the Beatitudes is actually addressing people in the plural. It's, it, Jesus is addressing a group of people. Okay, um, Specifically, he's speaking to a group of first century Jewish people, some of whom have become his disciples, uh, and behind them, perhaps, are these crowds of people simply checking him out. So there's Jesus on top of, of the hill, and he's got his disciples here, And he's speaking to them in the plural. Blessed are you, plural, y'all. For you, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for you all will be comforted. Okay? And behind them are these crowds of people who are kind of checking him out. They haven't really committed yet, but they're they're interested because he's doing cool stuff, like casting out demons and what's he going to do next. And anyway. So all these people that Jesus is speaking to are very aware that they're in a sort of exile, even though they live in their own land. And the reason that they feel maybe exiled is because Rome was in political authority over them. And on top of that, they're aware that most of their Jewish brothers and sisters didn't even live in Israel at the time that Jesus was around. Most of them were still scattered, the diaspora, they're spread about. Ever since the uh, Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian captivity, people were spread all throughout the ancient Near East. And so they're aware of this fact. And here's where it gets interesting. I I think it's been interesting all along, but here's where it gets really interesting. One of the scriptures that Jesus talked about most and was probably in the hearts and minds of many of his listeners was the book of the prophet Isaiah. And in that book, God describes how he allowed his people to be taken into captivity because of idolatry, and I'm simplifying here, because of idolatry and because they didn't treat each other with love like they were supposed to. Um, And... But in in this book, he also promises great deliverance. Great deliverance. And Collins read Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 earlier in the service. Did that sound familiar to anyone? Have you heard that before? Yeah. um, it's It's quoted in Luke's gospel as how Jesus describes his role, how he describes his ministry. Um... Jesus said that he was fulfilling that great scripture of deliverance to the captives, of good news to the afflicted, and, wait for it, comfort to those who mourn. Isaiah 61. Okay? Jesus quotes Isaiah more than any other prophet. He's with a group of people who, man, we have so many extra-biblical sources, sources from that time period that are not in the Bible written by people in that community. The buzz, you guys, for Messiah to come back was just thick. 
And Isaiah was a very popular read. Oh, everybody wants that Isaiah 63 to come through, true. And so here you've got this group of people um, who are basically in a state of mourning because they, they don't even have freedom in their own country. Rome is over them. Many of their people are scattered throughout the ancient Near East. And here's this guy saying, blessed are those who mourn. When you, six times in the Old Testament, you see this mourning and comfort come together. It's in these prophecies of deliverance. So where we have to have that explained to us because we live in... 2011 and we don't live with that context when jesus says those words those people are probably thinking isaiah 63 isaiah 40 comfort oh comfort my people right this is a a word of deliverance blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted what good news we see in the beatitudes that jesus is not just giving us good advice or a good moral code to live by he's giving us good news I messed up that statement. I said, Jesus is not just giving us a moral code or good advice. What I have written is, Jesus is not giving us a moral code and good advice. He's not giving us a new moral code and good advice with that beatitude. He's giving us good news. That's it. That's it. Blessed are those who mourn. That's the fact. For they shall be comforted. Hmm. And the reason that's good news is he's saying that those who are mourning will be comforted. That that is a, a promise. And it's good news because he is the one who is going to fulfill it. In, in, I'm not going to bore you with Greek grammar. There's this thing called a divine passive. And these beatitudes are full of these divine passives. And what that means is that uh, will be comforted, right? That's not something that you and I are called to do. It just says... Those who mourn will be comforted, right? We receive something we receive. And a divine passive means that the the actor of the comforting is him. That's why it's good news. Mm. That's rich. But what exactly is Jesus talking about when he's speaking of mourning? Now, what usually jumps to our minds, and I, I went over this in our small group a little bit on Wednesday too, and it was kind of a common theme, is is our own mourning. Right? When, when, first of all, when we read this beatitude, uh, a lot of times we think about our own state of mourning. And certainly on a foundational level, Jesus offers comfort to individuals who mourn the loss of loved ones, uh, maybe are mourning a loss of, of direction in life, loss of hopes and dreams. And you know, maybe this applies to you today. Maybe you're mourning uh, a shift in expectations. Maybe you thought your life would look differently right now than you think it is. And that's hard to accept. Maybe you've hoped for a better relationship with your children or with your parents. Maybe you hoped you would be parents by now. Or maybe you're surprised that you are parents. You may be mourning the loss of a job, and you may be mourning the job that drives you nuts right now. And Jesus audaciously calls you blessed, not because you're suffering but because he promises to redeem it all. This comfort he offers, is it now or later? Yes. (laughs) This is the weird now and not yet nature of the kingdom of heaven. 
Yes, the hope and the promise is that one day the kingdom's going to break in in fullness and we will mourn no more, no more tears. Um, all that causes suffering and mourning one day will be taken care of. It'll all be put right. Oh, bring it on. And yes, the kingdom is also breaking in now. Those who trust in Jesus and commit to love and obey Him, He gives the Spirit of the living God to guide and to comfort. Not to rock you and snuggle you like I do with my two-year-old when she skins her knee. She said, Daddy, rock the baby. So, she's getting kind of big though. Um, not like that. But in, did I just do that? Yeah. It, but in the, true, in the true sense of the word comfort from the Latin, with fortitude. Okay? So, yeah, in our yeah, comfort, I think of my two-year-old and rock the baby thing, but, but that word, what it really means in the true sense, is with fortitude that God promises us in the Spirit to give us, to be with us in our suffering, to be with us in our mourning. <clears throat> the Spirit gives us strength to endure and reminds us of our adoption as daughters and sons of the living God. And the Spirit also gives us each other, the church. One of my greatest sources of comfort in this world is Jesus through you, through my community, through other brothers and sisters who are walking with Christ. And for some reason, people feel that they are subpar Christians if they admit to genuine mourning, or at least if you mourn for too long, right? What, what is it? You get a week or something to mourn if somebody dies in your family, uh, and then you better get with it. Or if you've got depression or something like that, well, you better figure out how to stuff that because there's no place for that in the church. That infuriates me. Sorry. So many places and time periods the church has been the least safe place for people to be who they really are. This beatitude is a gift. It gives us permission to be real with God, to be real with one another. If we can't do it here, where are we going to do it? Woe to us if we do not allow people a safe place to grieve within the church. And remember... The whole of discipleship and the place we start in the Sermon on the Mount rests with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Woe to us if we create a place where people are discouraged from admitting their weaknesses. Woe to us if we try and take away Jesus' gift of lament and grief because we're too uncomfortable to be around people who are grieving. If we make a place where you can't show your weaknesses, then we're making a place where people can't be poor in spirit. And if you can't be poor in spirit, where do you begin following Jesus? Now, as delicate and emotionally important as our personal mourning is to Jesus, and it is, and the scriptures are full of passages of God comforting us. I want to sensitively suggest that our mourning of personal loss 
is not the main thing Jesus had in mind uh, with the second beatitude. Remember that the beatitudes are given to us in the plural. Jesus is speaking to a group about mourning. And what I think he's getting at is that those who love him and want to receive his kingdom will have broken hearts for the world. Broken hearts for other people. We as a church should lament the state of affairs in the world. You know, and, and one of the, the hot ones right now, not, it's important, is the, uh, this human trafficking issue, right? That small children are sold into slavery. That should break our hearts. It should break our hearts that, that people from our own country are some of the biggest, uh, you know, perpetuators of this. They go to other countries and they have these sex safaris. It's horrible. What's even, uh, if it can get more horrifying than that, there's such a market for it that now kids are getting shipped here. How does this happen in our own backyard? And just, yeah, I mentioned the snowfall earlier, you know, like I, Corey and I went out last night, VA um, for mother-in-law's in town, and, uh, you know, I'm complaining on the way home because like, oh man, it's warming up again. And, and I wanted more snow because we don't get much snow down here. You guys on the hills got all the snow. And, you know, I love my warm, cozy fireplace and stuff. And, I, and then it hit me, you know, there's warming shelters open all over town on these cold nights that people can't even find shelter. And here I am complaining it's not cold enough and I want it to snow more. You know, and, I, and I get it, you guys. There's this, it is fun to warm up by the fire and it's wintertime and it's cold, but, but there wasn't this part of me, and I lament this fact, that I, I was thinking about myself, right? And I wanted to have this perfect evening by the fire with lots of snow. Um, and there's people out there who, it's life and death, Right? In the face of injustices and poverty and disease and despair, those who will inherit the kingdom, those who follow Jesus, the church, that's you and me, we've got to lift our voices in prayer and service and bear the burdens of the world in the name of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Jesus himself was brokenhearted over the state of the world. Jesus had gut-wrenching pain and anger when his friend Lazarus died. In John's Gospel, it's very clear. Uh, that he was deeply disturbed about that. And those who love Jesus and see brokenness, uh, the brokenness he sees will mourn. I think that we also mourn over what could be, over what should be. Justin and I were talking about this over coffee this week, and it, it just kind of hit me like, sometimes my deepest mourning comes from these stabs of joy uh, of what uh, what life could be, or I experience just a moment when all is right. It almost brings me to tears, and then I realize, oh, I'm, I'm too satisfied with the status quo. I'm too satisfied with just how things are. I've accepted how things are so much that I forget that there's this wonderful life that Jesus promises. There's this wonderful what could be that brings us to like a healthy, I think a healthy dis-ease with where we're at in the world. That's okay. Mother Teresa says, I found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. So we see how Jesus' second beatitude applies to the mourning of personal losses. And we see how it applies to the, the mourning for brokenness in the world 
But there's another aspect we need to talk about, and here another prophet will be helpful. Uh, Collins isn't the other prophet, but Collins read from the other prophet, uh, Joel 2, 12 through 14, which speaks of people admitting their sinfulness and mourning over their rebellion against God. Mourning over the fact that much of their situation is due to their sinfulness. Part of being poor in spirit is coming face to face with our own sin. And we can't possibly face our sinfulness without it leading, I think, to some mourning. To some mourning. And we need to hold the communal and the personal intention here. Jesus is speaking again in the plural, which means that we mourn as a people over injustices that we, and this is going to sound harsh, but there's no other way to say it, we as a community should mourn for the injustices that we perpetuate, either through our own ignorance or our own selfishness. As an American people, our thirst for comfort and materialism and great deals on cheap products produced on the backs of people we don't even know, um, that's lamentable. <laughs> and you've got to hear me. I mean, what is this? I'm going kind of long here even. And this is one sermon, and this is a complex issue. So I'm not like saying, oh, you know, you should boycott the big box stores. and start. You start chasing those trails of where everything comes from, we'd be living in the sticks. And then you could complain about sanitation or something. like. I don't know. Because where does everyone go to the bathroom out there? But um, I think about these things, right? I'm a deep thinker. Uh, these issues are hugely complex. So this is not some like, be green, peace out. Uh, we, we, do need, we do need to pay attention to those things, but this is not that simple. So don't hear this as being simplistic. This is a system that we live in that's been perpetuated, as far as I know, since history's been recorded. Culture after culture after culture, the strong oppress the weak, exploit them so that the few can have more than the, than the many. It's just, you guys, we're just part of it. It's, it's part of why we're, we're poor in spirit when we realize this stuff. We're part of this. It, stay, it's okay. We're part of this, and part of, part of following Jesus is saying, Jesus, we're a part of this. And it makes my heart break. I would argue that until we mourn for the world's brokenness, our, and our culpability for that brokenness, we're not going to be emotionally invested enough to do anything about it. What really motivates you to do anything? Is it facts? Very rarely. If it were facts, the dare, uh, dare not to do drug thing, or don't smoke. I mean, how many times in high school did you look at the picture of the black lungs or like the, the brain on drugs, and yet like, people still do it, right? It's not facts that really hook you. You know, it's when, it's when you have a parent who's abused a substance and you realize, I cannot be like that with my kids. It's, it's, when, it's, it's, it's emotion. Emotion is what drives us to things. So I think in our culture, we do a really good job at masking pain, at masking uh, our, our culpability to anything. And when we do that, we short-circuit the process that mourning can give us. If we don't mourn well... There's no comfort, because we don't need it. We self-medicate, we create our own goals that make us feel good about ourselves, and as soon as we start to feel bad, we just find something else. We have illicit relationships that make us feel better. 
for a short time and we keep on feeding the monster. And what Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize you're at the end of your rope. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you're blessed when you mourn, not because you're mourning, but because only when you truly mourn can you truly be comforted. So now what? I really struggle with this. Are we supposed to be sad all the time? Like, I I know this is heavy, you guys. I would say I'm sorry, but I didn't write it. Jesus did. Uh, So what do we do? Well, I've got two observations. First is, we take this verse from a 30,000-foot view again. We balance this passage out with other passages in Scripture that tell us to have hope, that tell us to have joy, that tell us to live full of thanksgiving, that tell us to to have abundant life. And remember, those passages of of abundant life and, and living with thanksgiving, those are kind of like imperatives. Those are commands. This one is not a command to be mournful. It's just saying that when you're real with yourself, you're going to mourn. Take heart. If you mourn, Jesus is going to comfort you. We're called to live life to the fullest. But true life is found in Jesus, not in the world's definition of the good life. So we're to have love for life and genuine dis-ease over the brokenness around us. You know, the, the, you, I know it sounds paradoxical again. You can have both. You can have great friends, enjoy cooking good food together, have a nice bottle of wine or sparkling cider, whatever your thing is. Um, you, you can enjoy creation. Have great loving relationships. We're called to those things. But at the same time, in these communities that follow Christ, we're also aware of those who, A, haven't, haven't experienced Jesus yet. So we mourn for that. And that motivates us to tell people about Jesus. And we see brokenness in our own community. And that brokenness in our hearts motivates us to get outside of ourselves and to make a difference in Jesus' name. Second, you may find that you're sitting here kind of convicted because you're not very mournful about the world's ills. I mean, let's be honest. I admitted it myself about the cold weather thing. Our natural tendency may to be uh, read Jesus' words and try and figure out how can I be more mournful? Admit it, you're thinking that. Let me remind you of something. That Jesus' words are not something we strive to make happen here. They are not prescriptive. He's not prescribing us this thing to do. Um, they're descriptive of what happens to us when we surrender more and more and more of our lives to Jesus. It all starts at the beginning, as Jeff said last week, poor in spirit, recognizing our great need for Jesus and rejoicing that when we depend on him alone, ours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to draw on a friend Someone I've never met. I call lots of authors friends. This is J. Barry Shepherd, who wrote Prayers from the Mount, a morning and evening prayer for every um, part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's fantastic. And I want to I close with one of his prayers um, that sums up better than I could what, what I'm feeling. So would you join me in prayer? 
It doesn't make sense, Lord. Blessed are those who mourn. You might as well say, full are the hungry, healthy are the sick, even alive are the dead. It's a contradiction in terms. Happy are the sad. How can anyone make sense of it? One thing, at least this word of yours speaks to the world we live in. For sadness, mourning, is real and important part of our existence. We mourn the loss of innocence, of youthful dedication, of ideals and goals, long lost within our daily lives. We grieve about the daily tragedies, the fires, the crashes, the bombings, the starvation and the slaughters that deface each morning's headlines. We weep for those within our closer circle who face death or have already passed beyond. And when you said, those who mourn, Lord Jesus, you spoke to every one of us. You speak to me as I pray this prayer. True mourning, after all, is an experience of love. If we did not love, we would not grieve. And there have been those who would protect themselves from all such loss by never loving anyone. Poor souls. Help me, and I'll say help us this day, to recognize the sadness of our world, the basic tears within all things that are essential to the fullest knowing of this human life and all its height and depth, and then lead us toward blessing in our tears, Lord. Reveal to us the love that lies right at the core of grief, and from that love, teach us to grow. Yes, show us how to turn our tears and the grief of others into sure and steady laughter through the wonder of your word. Blessed are those who mourn. Amen.